You guys ready to get started? Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you guys for coming to this. I hope it's a, a, a benefit to you. Um, I don't know if we're all thinking uh, that the, the goal uh, is of this teaching is, is the exact same. And I think we may even have different motivations for being here. Um, some of us want to lead better. Some of us want to be led better. Some of us want to make just better decisions. Some of us want more room to develop our capacity for leadership. So I don't know what your motivation is. What, I'll, what I'd like to ask you to do is uh, maybe before um, I, I start speaking into the subject and, and take your train of thought in the direction I'm intending to go uh, so that you don't forget where you were hoping I would go, maybe you could write down before you even get started a couple of things that you're hoping I address so that you don't forget them because of all the stuff I talk about. Because I'll have a good question that I want to ask and I'll go to something, I'll hear the guy speak and I'll get some good stuff. I'm like, oh crap, I, there was something I wanted to ask him but I never got to it. So if you could write that down before I get started, I want to make sure. Uh, I plan to leave 15 minutes. So I've, I've already started a 35 minute uh, countdown. Um, so anybody listening on the thing, they already know how long I went. So if I go over, my bad for you guys online. But um, uh, I just want to be able to hit your questions at, at the end because I, I want to make sure that you get out of this what God arranged for you to get from it. Does that make sense? Uh, so uh, the, 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 the topic is collaborative leadership. Um, I've never done a talk on this before, uh, so I'm, I, I'm, I'm honestly a little bit nervous about it. I, I think it's one of our church's unique abilities. That's why I wrote it down. Um, I had also written down another topic that I'm a little bit more experienced in. So I'm actually going to be writing down some of your questions at the end of the, uh, uh, today so that I can make sure those things are addressed if I ever get the opportunity. So I, I'm hoping you guys help me um, as, as, as much as I'm hoping to be a blessing to you guys also. Um, I was a uh, youth pastor for 14 years before um, I moved to Boston. Uh, to uh, actually be a professor at a Bible college. And my non-religious neighbors uh, asked us to start a Bible study for a friend of theirs who had attempted suicide. And uh, it was actually visiting her friend in the hospital that my non-religious neighbor said to her non-religious friend, you need to be in a Bible study. If Sean and Billy Jane started a Bible study in their house, would you go to it? And she said, yeah, if you and, you and your husband will go. And she goes, okay, Sean. So our church was pretty much started by pagans and um, has been filled with them ever since. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's, we're the most non-strategic uh, church plant ever. But while I was a, a, a past, or excuse me, a Bible college professor, I was a volunteer. Um, I was a volunteer leader at a church plant on the west side of the city, and so was a buddy of mine uh, named James. Now, all three of us worked at the Bible college together. Uh, uh, one of the guys was the lead pastor of the church. The other two of us were were. Uh, professors in in the college uh, but also worked in the church underneath this other guy that worked with us and um, uh, when I started attending the church it was about 40 people I think it grew to about 80 people and um, uh, there was one particular meeting it was going great the first six months I felt like uh, like I felt like I was on the ground floor of something that was going to be amazing and the guy could cast vision like no other and he was a phenomenal communicator uh, we went to a local hotel, we were in the lobby, and he said, uh, you know, I want to brainstorm things about, like, like, let's talk about our church and what we can do to, to, to help more people find and follow Jesus. And, and so I spoke up and I, I said, you know, one of the things that's always bothered me about every church I've ever been a part of my entire life is that you could go two or three doors down from that local church, knock on a random door and ask, what value does this church bring the community? And I don't think that they would, they would, they, they would have had anything to say. And, you know, if the people that are closest geographically to the church can't feel any tangible benefit to the existence of the church. I don't know if we're really doing our job. 
and that didn't fit the theological bent of, of, our, of my lead pastor um, and um, uh, because he believes that the church is for Christians and and I, I guess I touched a nerve that I, I wasn't aware was there and um, it made him angry and he started yelling uh, at me and in the lobby of a hotel it was very uncomfortable and uh, uh, his intention was to shut me down, and he, and he did. And uh, so the lesson I learned was that this wasn't a safe place for me to give my honest opinions. Um, and what ended up happening was, as I was removed from my position, my buddy was removed from his position. And while we went off uh, eventually, and we started uh, our Grace Church in, in Avon, Stoughton first, now we're in Avon, and God's allowed us to help four other churches get started. We're about to plant, excuse me, three other churches get started. No, four of the churches. We've been the sending church for four of the churches. Uh, we're about to start our fifth church in uh, January or February, and Stephen here is going to be starting the sixth church. Uh, that's what's happened with us. And with the other guy, James, um, God's allowed him to start a church in Taunton, and they've, their church has since started three other churches out of their church. So, uh, And then the church that, that, that is still being pastored by the guy who both of us used to follow the direction of uh, that church went from 80 back down to about 25 or 30 again. Um, now, I'm, I, I don't share that story uh, to say, you know, who's good guys and bad guys. The point I wanted to make is that uh, there was a time when that baby church had all three of us fully leveraged for the glory of God in that church. And so the capacity to do really amazing things for the glory of God was there in existence on that one leadership team and that church never did benefit from what God had equipped the other two pastors on that staff to be able to help that church do. So what ended up happening is God took us out from under the authority of a, of a pastor whose mindset limited the capacity of his own staff so that we could actually do somewhere else what God had, I believe, originally intended us to be able to do with him in his church. Does that make sense? And so he missed out on whatever amazing things God intended us to be able to, can you imagine all three of us together hitting on all cylinders in one location? When you consider what God's done with us apart from each other, the synergy we could have had in that location underneath his authority and leadership would have been amazing. And truthfully, I think that what we could have experienced together on that staff under his leadership would have given me more experiences so I would have made less mistakes when we ended up doing some of those things in our place and my buddy would have done less mistakes in his place in Taunton. We could have learned under him, you know what I mean? But instead, we were stifled under him. And, and I, I honestly believe that sometimes the biggest barriers to what God wants to do in our churches is in us as leaders, not necessarily in the people we lead. Does that make sense? So how many of you lead pastors were on the staff of a, at another church? Raise your Lead pastors, raise your hand. And how many of you were on staff at another church before you became a lead pastor? I guess my question is, would, would, would be to consider what do you feel about your capacity to influence change in that church and what role that limiting effect had on your decision to leave and go somewhere else. And I, and I, and I think that those of us who are pastors or those of us who are uh, assistant pastors or staff pastors are, or support, support staff, uh, I, I think that God's put us in this church to actually affect change and to make a difference. 
And, and I, I guess if you're in a support position, your ability to take from today's teaching things that you can change might be limited, um, but maybe it will help shape the leadership teams that you currently lead on the staff that you're in. Because I don't think that only lead pastors can lead collaborative leadership teams. I believe that you've, given, you've been given responsibility by God to lead in your church at whatever level. Um, you can also be the most limiting factor to what your leadership team is able to do in your location, in your area of ministry. Does that make sense? So our specific experience um, in Avon, our story uh, goes, and, and this doesn't bother me if it doesn't bother you guys. Is that, like I see some of you guys, like I wonder if that's, like I feel like you're wondering if that's bothering me, but I'm, I'm totally cool with distraction. Dale, you're the facilitator of this thing, and you're like, oh, crap, we should have staked those down. or right so we're cool and i knew this when they said you're in a tent i was like okay i don't need like this i might have picked a bad top and then i'm not even in tent number one i'm in tent number two which is like a step above shed i think shed was where they had me and then like a few extra people showed up so like crap we're gonna have to actually rent another tent now let's just call it tent number two so i'm just really glad that you guys are here but um um uh, but but our so so for us when we we started Grace Church like I said we didn't have a leadership team we didn't have a, pr a prospectus a church planting prospectus uh, we weren't uh, denominationally supported um, we didn't even have a sending church because the church I was a member of was that church whose pastor felt threatened by our dissenting opinions um, and so he declined to be our sending church so actually Ben Feldot who I think is one of the other uh, he might be in the other tent, so we're rocking the tents today. Um, but uh, uh, Ben became our sending, our sending church pastor and was a, a mentor for us. I'm, I'm thankful to God for him. But he was over an hour away, so he was very, like, he couldn't, he gave us money, but that was really all he could help us with. He couldn't help us with people because he didn't have any people in our area uh, to, to, send, to send us with. So uh, for, uh, it was still four more months after we started the Bible study. Um, with our neighbors, even though they asked us to start the Bible study, it was four months because I wasn't trying to start a church. I was just trying to be a godly guy in our community. And I had good friends with people who needed Jesus. And we were actually praying that God would send somebody to start a church. My wife said, maybe God already did. And I'm like, well, who, like we called it everybody we could think of. She said, well, well, who is it? She goes, maybe God already sent somebody. I said, who is it? And she goes, maybe it's us. And I said, chick, you're smoking crack. Because I know I said that because then I said, because I still use the word crack in sentences. That's how I know for a fact it's not us. So then it was about two weeks later when our neighbor asked us to start that Bible study. But then it was still four more months later before we actually started the Bible study because I was just so, like, who just starts a Bible study in their living room when there's no Christians there? It's just all, all pagans. Um, and I'm mainly referring to my wife, but I'm just kidding. I can only say that because she's not here. And if you knew her, you'd know how untrue that is. Um, but the point, uh, the, the, um, we were non-intentional, is what I'm saying, non-strategic. Uh, I, I like what everybody else is saying because we've said this too. We're not a church of strategy. We're a church of opportunity. But so I, that's what we've said for about two years. But I, uh, I think it was um, uh, uh, David uh, Payne who, who actually, I like he says we're, we're opportunists more than strategists. So I, I think he says it even better than what we've said it in the past. Um, so the people that we had on our leadership team were just college kids because I was a professor in a college. Uh, so as far as leadership, we didn't really have much. And they had no idea what they were doing, but I had no idea what I was doing. And so I'm 31, and they're, they're 20, 21 years old, and 
and we're winging it, flying by the seat of our pants. And, and it did take us four years to hit 100. So um, it wasn't like, like our, our launch, we had, we had 75 at our launch, and I thought we were killing it because the average church in New England is 40. And like, we doubled it on launch day. We're gonna be 300 by a year from now. Like they say it can't be done in Boston, but dang it, we're gonna show them, is what I'm thinking. So we had, we had la- launch, we had 75. The next Sunday, we had 35 by Christmas. That was November. By Christmas, we had 19. So it's a very similar story where, and you, you may have stories like that too, but, and it is a slow grind. It is. Um, but I think this, the thing that God strategically gifted us with is that we launched our church with all pagans. So, and, and I really do think starting your church with unsaved people is a healthier way to go than starting with, with church people. And I know that that's controversial to say, and I might not be invited back for that. Um, but um, church people come with expectations that might not actually fit the New Testament example of the way the gospel spreads. So um, they come with wants, they come with needs, and, and, and they come with agendas. And, and, and so I think, so let me just say this, screen the church people more than you screen the lost people that come onto your leadership team or, or your volunteer team. I really do think that the most strategic thing you can ever do is say no to somebody who's a Christian. If you offend a Christian, they'll go to another church. You offend a lost person, they go to hell. So I know who I'd rather offend. Are you with me? So at, at a year into this, we're now at the same size as a lot of the churches that are supporting us. I'm like, well, you're 102. I don't know why we're giving you any money. So our funding started dropping off, and then we aggressively sought coaching. And uh, I went to Exponential Church Planning Conference in Orlando. Some of you guys have probably been to that and, and sovereignly just bumped into a guy who, uh, I don't need to give you the whole story. It, it's a cool story, but it doesn't, it's not for this place. But uh, in, in any case, that began a relationship where he said, we're not going to support you. Most of the churches that had supported us were like $100 a month. Um, no no like, like really big heavy hitters or anything like that. So in my mind, I don't want another $100 a month. I want somebody to tell me what the freak I'm supposed to do. <laughs> Like, I, I don't, like, I've never been in a church over, you know, 400 people. We have 100, but I don't even, I, I was a youth pastor. The largest youth group I had was 100. So, like, I'd never led more than 100 people myself. So, I, ju- I just need to know what to do. And so, uh, I found out um, through some coaching that everybody's got natural gifts and abilities. And what you're intuitively good at, you, you might not know why you're good at what you're good at. And so we fell into this collaborative leadership environment that became a very healthy thing for our church. And um, the coaching that we got kind of just plugged wisdom into a healthy leadership culture that we already had. And then so from that point on, we grew by 100 people. So it took us four years to get to 100. And then we grew by 120 people every year after that until we got in a new building. And we've been growing by about 250 every year since then. That's been over the past three years. And that was why we were starting other churches. And, and by the way, like send people out of your church to, to, to help start other churches in the area. Because every time we've gotten up and we've said, um, Listen, the question isn't at which church you get better preaching, at which church you get better kids program or better worship music. The question is at which location will my actual friends who are distant from God have the best chance to know and follow Jesus. And if you love Jesus and love your friends, then for the love of God and in the name of Jesus, you can't stay here in clear conscience. You must leave. And every time we've sent people at the very next Sunday, the Sunday they had their launch, we had the exact same attendance, if not better. We had the same offering, if not better. And the last church plant we sent out, they had two of our top three biggest givers, and we gave them five of our life group leaders. 
and it did not negatively impact us at all. Because when we were 85, we spun 15 people off to go start Life Community Church. So before we were in self-funding, self we sent out a church. And some of our churches dropped our support for that too because um, uh, they dropped our support because they said, we don't think baby churches, babies ought to be giving birth to babies. And you can't even pay your own bills. Why would you start another church? Because the goal of a church plant is not to pay its freaking bills. That's, That's why. The goal of a church plan is to give most people the best chance to know and to follow Jesus. And if they're not going to drive from Quincy and I got 15 people from coming from there, like a leader who will start the church, then dang it, send them out. And honestly, that's when we started growing by 100 people a year. Because I told, I told God, if you can trust me with 85, you'll trust me with 850. But if I can't be trustworthy with 85, why would God give me more people to mismanage? Does that make sense? Why would he give me more opportunities to do more damage? So, and, and I, I think God's honored that. So through our coaching, we found out that what we're intuitively good at, we need to deconstruct because if it's not intentional, it's not reproducible. So in sitting down for this, when, 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 he, when David told me that we want, I, I gave him like how to communicate spiritual things to non-spiritual people, apparently that was not a captivating title. And he said, we want you to do the collaborative leadership thing. I was like, oh crap, I've never actually sat down and figured out. Like I knew that was what he said, give us two things you guys are good at. And I knew that that was one of the things that other people had said about us, but I had never deconstructed it. So that's what we're, we're going to do right now. And, and I think one of the things that we discovered is that if you want to go fast, go it alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Does that make sense? Now, that's, that's not original to us. That's actually an African proverb that I found on collaborative leadership. But I was like, oh, my word, that's exactly what it's like. Like, you can make quicker decisions when there's nobody else you have to confer with. And when you're the authoritative leader, you can use your leadership team for advice, but you're still going to walk out of that meeting doing what you walked into that meeting determined to do anyway. You just want to make everybody feel like they had a say in it, right? So you can go faster without collaborative leadership, but you'll go farther with it. So I guess the question is, do you want to go fast? Uh, uh, do you want fast and efficient decisions or do you want effective decisions? Because they're not the same thing. Fast and efficient or, or do, you want, do you want effective? And I think that your answer is reflected in the actual leadership style that you have. Uh, there's a, a quote from Jim Tomberlin who um, is the expert on multi-site. Uh, and church mergers, and he's, I think he's got three or four different books now on church mergers. He's got a church called, a uh, book called uh, Better Together, uh, which is about how churches that are healthy and growing can partner with churches that, that are, are plateaued or declining, and, and how to shape those conversations so that uh, sometimes churches that are smaller but have a healthier growth, uh, growth gap uh, can, can reach out to pre-existing churches, denominational churches and communities that are spiritually under-resourced and start conversations with them where actually the larger church that has more resources will actually allow themselves to be adopted by the smaller church because of their, the trend, their growth trend and their ability to connect with new people. And that book, Better Together, uh, by the way, is, is a really great book on how to initiate those, those conversations. But Jim Tomlin is the guy who wrote that, and he said this, none of us is smarter than all of us. Isn't that great? None of us is smaller, smarter than all of us. So the truth is, you might have the most experience on the team that you, because everybody, listen, if you're at this conference, you're a leader. You're a leader. And it doesn't matter how many official leaders you lead, if there's people that you're responsible for, you. You are, you are a leader. 
And while you might have the most experience, the most training, or the most education, you don't know more than the collection of everybody you lead. Does that make sense? So none of us is smarter than all of us. So in, in collaboration, uh, Jim Tarmelin says, leads to better decisions, and better decisions lead to better results. What's the result? More people finding and following Jesus. I mean, I'm, in, I'm, I'm interested in ROI, just like any business person. Now, that for them, return on investment is profit shares. For me, it's more of my actual neighbors in Stoughton knowing and following Jesus. And dang it, I'm not going to be outworked by a T-Mobile kiosk salesman. They work harder at leadership development and ROI than pastors, to our shame. And the consequences of our lack of leadership skills far surpasses, surpasses, surpasses the, the consequences of their failure to lead well. And I do believe that those who are chasing money work harder to lead better than those in the church. Uh, a teamwork is not a virtue, it's a choice. And, and it's not a natural skill set. It's a choice. So what I want to do is I want to give you uh, benefits of shared leadership. I want to give you three reasons why you might not be able to lead this way. I'm going to talk about the value of team decision making versus a team advising a decision maker. And then uh, we'll start to wrap it up with practices of successful collaborative leaders. Um, the last thing that we'll do is we'll talk about actually building your, your team of leaders and then we'll open up to questions. What I, what I want you to do is when I say something that prompts a thought, a comment, suggestion, or question, um, I, I want you to disengage momentarily in the middle of my, my, my statement to write your question down. So don't wait until the end to think of questions. So if you're thinking of a pushback right now, and in fact, I'll, I'll say this since I've never done this before uh, or this topic before. If you have a question and you're like, hey, like, like you think other people might share this concern or this question, go ahead and interrupt me. Raise your hand and say, okay, what did you mean? Like if I say something you don't understand, if we have a different definition of terms and you need me to clarify myself, interrupt. So I don't want this to necessarily have to be a monologue. I mean, it's a sm we're tent number two. We can do whatever we want. In tent number two, we can sit on the floor Indian style. We can do, sorry, crisscross applesauce. I want to be politically, politically correct. Uh, Native American style. Uh, and th that is a joke. But benefits of shared leadership is that there's greater productivity as each person contributes from the greatest area of strength. You are not awesome at everything. <laughs> None of us are awesome at everything. And there's somebody on your team who's awesomer at the thing you're not awesome at. And giving them access, not to advising, but to actually making decisions will help you guys as a, as a ministry or as a church. Whether, so you make the, I don't want to keep having to say that. So if you're a pastor, make it your church. If you're a staff pastor or, or a ministry team leader, make it for the area of your ministry. You make your own personal application. So insert your level of responsibility here. Does that make sense? So that, that's how we'll do it. Um, so greater productivity is each person contributes from the greatest area of strength. So your, your leadership team will be more productive. Your own leadership will be more productive. Have you ever had a leader that asked for your opinion and they took your idea over them? How many of you guys have ever had over their own? 
many of you guys have ever had a leader do that? Did you lose respect for them or gain respect for them? You gain respect for them. Like you, you lose nothing. You lose nothing by letting other people help you make better decisions. It, nobody thinks you're less of a leader because you don't have the answers. They will actually respect you more because you ask them to help come up with them. And your own experience tells you that. So I don't know why when we actually finally get that top chair of either this area of ministry or this, this area of, of uh, uh, leadership within our church's pipeline or, or this whole church congregation, why, why we ought to all of a sudden forget that. And I think maybe the reason why we do that is that we've only been taught to mentor or lead by the leaders who've led us. And so our default setting is to lead the way we were led, whether we like that way or not. And I think that that's true, not just for leadership. I think that's true for marriage. I think that's true. If you had a screamer coach, then you're probably a screamer little league coach. It's just probably true, right? And if you had screamer parents, then you're probably a screamer parent. If your mom and dad avoided conflict, then you're going to have a tendency in, in your marriage to avoid conflict. Like I, I think we bring these default settings and we'll, we'll, we'll know that it's bad, but it's just, it just comes most natural to us. Uh, knowing that it was unhealthy when we were under it doesn't necessarily guarantee that we won't repeat those same mistakes when we have the opportunity to lead, and I don't know why. Uh, but that's one of the greatest benefits, too, is that it's less pressure on you as the leader. It's less pressure. I, I know that I'm not fully, so. and what's great is that becomes phenomenally beneficial as your church gains influence and opportunities to lead more people. I really don't have to lead everybody at Grace Church. I have to lead about 15 people at Grace Church. That, that's awesome. That's, that's, and I don't, there is nothing at Grace Church that I am responsible for. I have point authority on nothing at Grace Church. And by the way, this will help you guys out. This has nothing to do with the leadership, collaborative leadership as much as I think it'll help you out as far as understanding uh, the role or contribution people have to decisions that are being made. Uh, but there's four levels of authority. Let me give you these. Write these down because I, this comes from a guy named Steve Stroop who's a far wiser uh, leader than if I could grow up and be like him, that'd, that'd be amazing. But um, he wrote several different books, A Tribal Church, and he wrote uh, Money Matters in the Church. So when I say he wrote the book on money in the church, he actually wrote the book on money in the church. But uh, he talks about the four different levels of authority. He says there's info authority, and that's the right to know. That's your congregation. But not, your, church, your, your congregation doesn't have the right to know about, about every decision. You know what I'm saying? So there's, there's info authority. They have, they have the right to know about a decision. Input authority is that they have the right to contribute to a decision. That's a whole other level. Point authority is the right to make the decision. And veto authority is the right to change a decision. And I think it's our job as leaders to give as much point authority away as possible. That's what collaborative leadership is about. It's about giving away your point authority, the right to make the decision. That's healthy leadership knowing who to give that to. We're going to get to who to give that to in a minute. And truthfully, the more you have to use veto authority, 
either the more insecure you are as a leader or the poor job you did on giving point authority to <laughs> picking the right person to do, get, have point authority. Um, somebody asked uh, Brian Buford, who is a, the 20-year-old on our staff, who um, is, is still with us, and he's become our executive pastor. Not in, well, okay, you know that's not his title yet, but that's, that's what's coming. So uh, Stephen over here is, is, is uh, in residence. He's starting the church in September. Um, anyway, that's info authority, right? So I just, yeah, it's info authority. That's exactly, good call, good call. Um, uh, but, but somebody asked Brian, um, has Sean ever used veto authority? And I'm like, oh, I'm sure I have. But in, in 12 years of our church's existence, he can't think of a time when I changed a decision he made. Uh, but the neat thing is, because of our collaborative style of leadership, any decision that he was concerned about, he sought input authority. So even though I had veto authority, he was constantly seeking input from me and other people. So he, he brought a lot of people up to that input authority level in his own life uh, so that I never had to use veto authority because I, I knew the decisions he was making, he wasn't making on his own either. Um, third is leadership development. Because Brian, as a 20-year-old, 20, 20 was invited into the decision-making process. Because I'm 31, who else do I have on my team? I've got a 21, 31, he's 20. I really don't, everybody, nobody else on our, in our church really is even saved. So you're a Christian, what do you think we ought to do? Was pretty much the standard by which I allowed people to help us make decisions back in those days. And what that did was, is that made Brian more invested in the outcomes of the decisions that we made because he knew he helped make them, which made him a proactive learner. Uh, and now he's a freaking stud. So it's, it's, a, it's great for lead. So that's one of the benefits of shared leadership is leadership development. Four is creativity and innovation. Uh, there are TED Talks. If you, if you Google all the TED Talks about collaborative leadership, it's all about the benefits of collaborative leadership to creativity and innovation. So I didn't, I'm not speaking much to that because there are far more, uh, far more smarter that choose how much more smarter they are, as I said that that way, but um, that, that speak to that. So I'll let them do that. Um, uh, better decisions are made is the fifth one. And the people that you lead, when they know that you're not the autocrat, you're not a benevolent dictator, they actually trust the decisions that are made by the church more. When they know that, when I talk about the fact that yeah, I was talking with, you know, our, our mentors advised us this way. Like, I don't, I don't mind saying that I didn't make the decision on my own. And that actually, I have borrowed credibility from people that have far more experience simply because I invited them into the conversation and I don't mind sharing that I didn't make this decision on my own. And, and, and honestly, seven is that it's, it's biblical. When Paul started preaching the gospel, you know what he did? He said, whoa, wait a minute. I need to go back to Jerusalem and make sure I've made the right calls. They had already laid hands on him and sent him out. He did not have to do that. He did it because it's just wise. Does that make sense? Uh, there's a lot of other examples, both Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, for the sake of time, we're not going to go into that. Uh, three reasons why you as a leader might not be able to actually lead collaboratively. Three reasons why you won't be able to do this. Number one is this. You might not be capable of admitting your mistakes publicly. You might not have the emotional health, maturity, to be able to do that. 
Like, like if you admit you're wrong, you see that as a sign of weakness and God help anybody if they think that you're weak. Well, that'll keep you from doing it. And that's when you become the barrier. Um, you're not capable of admitting mistakes, weaknesses, or, or um, um, yeah, mistakes or weaknesses. Two, second reason why you might not be able to do this is that um, other, the people that you lead might not feel safe telling you they think you're wrong. Now, they probably wouldn't say it that way, but because that's how you react every time they come up with an alternate idea to the one you came up with, they learned. Just like I did in the hotel lobby. I learned. He, does, he really does not want my opinion. He doesn't want it. Number three, and sometimes our insecurities keep us focused on us getting recognition for the success rather than the team getting recognition for success. Because truthfully, it is a little bit difficult when Kenny Knott, who's our assimilations and discipleship pastor, when people are offering him the use of their timeshare in Cabo, and nobody offered that to me. It's true. They'll take him on a hunting trip. And he's a staff pastor. He's not the lead pastor. Nobody's ever taken me on a hunting trip. I need counseling over that, by the way. <laughs> He's been deep sea fishing. He's been lobstering. Holy cow, nobody, everybody likes Ken. But Ken's, Ken's the counselor. He's the like, like but I, I really do have to be okay with that. But sometimes I'm not. Like, I want people to know, well, do you know why he's at? It's because I share my leadership. And aren't I a better leader because I share? Like, then I, I use what I'm talking about right now to try to prove why I'm so much better than every, like, so I mean, like, this ego, this pride thing is a freaking killer when it comes to leadership because I don't want people to go, wow, Ken is a great leader. I want them to go, wow, Sean is a great leader because he lets Ken help lead. But I, I, I can't let that be the barrier. You know what I mean? So it's my own insecurity. So I'll tell you why uh, team decision-making is, is better uh, than, uh, and by the way, team decision-making is, a lot of us will say that we have collaborative leadership. Um, like like the, uh, the first church I worked at full-time, uh, the pastor, uh, we, we had a staff meeting every single day, every, every single day from um, 8.30 to 11, every, every single day. Every day we had a staff meeting. I just... My wife said, well, I was talking about this last night. My wife goes, I'm, I'm just surprised you guys ever got anything done. And, and <laughs> I don't know that we ever did get a lot done, but we, we talked an awful lot. Um, but the pastor, essentially, we could tell, like, he would ask for input on stuff, and then he would go ahead and do what he was going to do anyway. And it only took a little bit of time before we realized that was going on because when you, when you brought up a conflicting idea to the idea, so he would say, hey, this is what I'm thinking. What do you guys think? All right, well, now we already know what he wants to do, right? Or he'd say, so what do you guys think? We start talking, and it's starting to go in a direction that's the opposite of where he wanted to go. He's like, oh, my word, i got to get control of this meeting again. And he says, well, I was thinking this. What do you guys think about that? So you can either present your, your dissenting opinion, recognizing that you're going to get shut down, and there's only so long that you want to do that before you just get frustrated until you just start giving answers that kiss his butt so that you can get some kudos out of this. Because I'm not affecting change. So I can either be a pain in his butt or I can get some brownie points. 
well, for the sake of annual review, I'm going for the brownie points because he's not going to listen to me anyway. Right? Um, so he was looking for what he wanted to hear. Um, each of us, so, and, and the truth is, at great, so at Grace Church, the, the four guys, and Stephen's the fifth guy now, but, but me, Brian, Taylor, Ken, me, Brian, Taylor, and Ken, I really do believe that all four of us could be our own lead pastor somewhere. I really do believe that. Uh, and I, and I, I've listened, uh, Brian, Taylor, and Ken, I think, are, are phenomenal communicators, too. So I really do believe that e any one of us four could go out and start our own church. And I think that we could start a church that would become self-supporting, self-governing, and self-reproducing, which to me is the definition of an independent, uh, uh, healthy church. Um, but I believe that the church we lead together is far more significant than the one that any one of us would lead independently. I think that each one of us recognized, like, like Ken moved to Boston to start a church, and then he came into my office about a year after he moved here. He even moved into the town that he wanted to plant in, and we had done some assessment, and he said, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah. I said, do you think I'm the guy? I'm like, what do you mean? Do you think I'm the lead guy? Now, he'd already sold his house, moved out to Boston, was working, was working a minimum wage job at, at um, um, cutting meat at BJ's uh, for, for $7.35 or $8.35 an hour, and living off of the equity from the house he sold. So he's already all in. And then he comes in and he goes, do you think I'm the guy? And I said, what do you mean I'm the guy? Do you think I'm the lead guy? Do you think I should start this church? Do you think I should, I'm the lead church planter? And I think it was one of those Holy Spirit moments where I was like, oh my word, I didn't. But how do I, like, how do I tell this to a guy who's already sold his house, quit his job and moved his family? But um, I felt that he could, but I knew it wasn't going to be the church he'd want to pastor. Does that make sense? So I said, Ken, yes, I think you could go out and start a church. I just don't think that the church that you would start is the church you would want to stay at long term. But I really do believe that if you stayed here, you could help Grace Church be far more than what it will ever be without you. And he goes, okay. And now that was it. And, that, and then I go, and then I said, and that's how I also know that you're not the right guy to start on your own. Is that you were so easily talked out of it. Is the, is the other is the other reason. But here's the way that it is. So if you've got a hierarchical position, a status of leadership in, in your organization, or even in the area of ministry that you lead, then you're the top dog. Then there's the people you lead. And then there's the people they lead. And then there's the people they lead. In your mind, there's this high that they can go in their leadership, right? You've capped. You've put the lid on how much influence they have. And truthfully, once they mature as a leader, past the lid you gave them, they leave. This is the secret to keeping your best players. You raise their chair up next to your chair. That's what you do. You don't lose veto authority. You're just now sharing point authority. And nobody thinks, and the reason why you won't do this is you're insecure. Same as me. I want credit. But truthfully, you gain respect. You don't lose respect. You gain authority. You don't lose authority when you share it. Um, but it, see, I came from another campus, and I came to another campus to, to be that guy next to our, our, our campus pastor. 
And me and, me and my wife, we felt a little resentment from the team uh, only because it's like, we felt like, oh, who's this guy coming in over here now? Because our past lead passer put us in that position because there was a lot of people, a lot of teamers or staff members struggling. struggling. They needed some growth. So they put us in that position to help the youngers, the young I gotcha. grow, you know? So, um, you know, he did right by being putting us next to this, this uh, campus pastor. But, but how do you get out of that deficit? Yes, that, that, exactly. That hole? Okay. Um, well, I have an opinion. I may not have the answer. Um, but my opinion on that is, is um, um, proximity and familiarity is what gives us the ability to assign positive intention to decisions that are made that we don't have access to. So when you, uh, there's, there's this piece of information, there's in, this piece of information. They don't like this piece of information, uh, but they don't know how you came to it. If they don't know you, they're automatically gonna fill in that narrative with negative information. If they know you, they'll fill it in with positive information. So I could see my wife talking to another man and because I know her, I know like, like how did she end up in that, who's that guy? I don't know that guy, she's talking to that guy. So like there's a whole lot of information between what I know and what I don't know and what I'm seeing. But I fill in all of that, I'll fill in a narrative with something, but that will all be positive information because of my familiarity with her and her character. So if I see you talking to another woman that way that I don't know, because I don't know you as well, I'm more likely to fill in that gap with negative information. Does that make sense? And so I'll assume negative intention to the, to the choices to, to what I'm seeing. So understand that because they don't know, the only reason that's happening has nothing to do with your capability to lead. It has everything to do with the fact that they don't know you. So somebody was talking about trust today, but trust is handcuffed to performance. Handca handcuffed, handcuffed, that's hand, handicapped and hand, hand, it's handcuffed to performance. When you start doing things that help them, a little bit, it becomes like a flywheel. So that's a little turn of the wheel is you did something that helped them, that's a push. Now there's a little bit of trust. You did something again that helped them, now there's a little bit more trust. Now you did something else that made them look good or made them more successful in their area of ministry, there's a bit more trust. Now you can't affect that up, like you can't change the leadership culture in your campus if you're not the lead, if you're not point authority, right? But you can with the people that you lead. So if you've been brought in to lead those people, they don't know you so they don't trust you. So now your job is to serve them and make them successful and then trust follows. Trust follows performance. It doesn't precede it. And trust doesn't come with position. It comes with performance. Um, oh gosh, let me give you practices of successful collaborative leadership and then we'll open it up for questions. I, I think I've only got like five more minutes anyway, so I'll just walk through this. So here's what I want you to do. Rather than writing down everything I'm about to say, I'm going to think like maybe two or three of these things are helpful. So listen for the one that you think you need to write down because I don't have the time to talk slowly through these things. So practices of success, successful collaborative leaders. They're more passionate about the cause than their agenda. And the cause is the mission. I need to be more passionate just making sure more people find and follow Jesus than I am me getting my way. They have to accept that they're not in control. And that is really hard for us leaders, especially if you're a driven leader. And truthfully, you never really were in control. Like, they'll do what you said to do while you're there, but as soon as they get in their car, they're trash talking you. It's just true. Like, you're, like you're getting coercion. That's all you're getting. That really is, like, you're not, you don't control, they are a grown man. Um, sorry, there's a southern phrase that goes with that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I got stuck on. 
There you go. Grown butt man. Right? Like you're not, you can't control him. You can't control him. You, you, so you, you had no control anyway. Uh, they lead without the safety net of authority, position, and, and, and hierarchy. Collaborative leaders don't need their position to affect change. They lead through influence and motivation. It's a, it's a harder way to lead, but truthfully, that's what made you a leader in the first place. I think we sometimes get lazy and lean on our position. I'm the boss. Just do it this way. It's cheap. And everybody in the room knows you just cheated. They know you cheated. You stopped the conversation because you didn't like the way it was going, and they'll have to do what you said to do because you give them money. Ain't nobody walking out of that room respecting you for that decision, though. And truthfully, and now they trust you even less than they did before the meeting started. You lost. You thought you won, but you lost. They see the team primarily as peers and partners. I don't lose my veto to bring them up to peers and partners in decision making. They encourage risk taking. And the way that you encourage risk taking is not by not punishing people when they fail. If you don't punish them when they make mistakes, they're more willing to make mistakes. And then do all of the TED Talks on innovation and they will say that failure is the mother of all innovation. Um, lead with questions, assuming that your team has the answers. Allow your team members to change your decisions when you know they have a better idea. And in the group discussion, you're able to encourage people to critique the idea, not the person. You're stupid. You're such a moron. No, 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 no. Talk about the idea. And I'm your boss. Stop talking to me that way. Uh, don't stop the debate or force your opinion. And you've heard this before. While we say that we don't, we don't want to be the smartest, if we're, in, if we're the smartest people in the room, that we've, we're in the wrong room. That's your leadership team. Assume that they know something, they have a perspective that you don't have. So that's, I've, I've, whatever, that's where we're at for the sake of time. Uh, I want to respect your time. I want to give you a break. So I think we have about, uh, we have, we have uh, 20 seconds for questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll go like two minutes, two or three questions. Uh, so you mentioned earlier letting people who are on your team operate in their strengths. What tools do you use to help discover their strengths and even to help them see that what sometimes they think is a strength actually isn't and they're really weak in an area but they're too prideful to be able to admit that? <laughs> um, ask Dino. I, I, I know you said only two minutes. And no, that no, no, no. I'll give you a couple of tools that we use for assessment. And truthfully, when you, when you can share with somebody how other people felt after interacting with them, they can argue on whether or not they are a good leader. They can't argue with what that other person told you they made them feel. So don't make it about facts. Make it about impact. Okay. So like, I know you think you're really gifted at this, but what I want you to know is you're frustrating the leaders under you or whatever, make it like that, that, they can't argue with that. 
And so if they understand the impact this is having on other people, that that's something they can't argue back on. So I wouldn't make it about my opinion about your leadership gift versus your opinion about your leadership gift. I know what this, this person walked out of your meeting crying. And we, as, your, as your leader, we need to deal with that. But that can't happen again. She's a volunteer. Uh, anyway, um, but the, re, the tools are uh, leading from your strengths. Uh, or, uh, strength, um, ministryinsights.com. Ministryinsights.com has a $27 test that everybody who is ministry coach or higher has to take. And it's the, the circle that it puts you on. You might even be able to get, guess where you're at. So the, there's a circle right here. It's divided like this, like with like a plus. So it's a circle that's divided into four equal pies, uh, pieces of pie. Uh, the top part is the higher you are right here is uh, task oriented. The bottom of the pie is people oriented. The right side of the pie is fast decision maker. The left side of the pie is slow decision maker. Does that make sense? Is it a modified disk profile? Yes, okay. it's a modified disk profile. And if I say, are you more people or task, you could probably say, this is how up or down I am. And if I said, are you fast or slow, you could probably get pretty close to where you are. What you want is the people who are responsible for innovation and, and oversight to be fast decision makers but you don't want them to be responsible for any of the systems and processes. You want the slower decision makers doing that. You want the executive types to be higher on the task scale. You want your front end people and stage people to be down more on the people scale is just how that works out. And then so that's the first test we take and the other one is StringsFinder 2.0. Good question. Uh, we have time for two more maybe. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned kind of veto power um, as being something that you don't relinquish um, as, as lead. Um, and, and it's also something that you haven't had to really you do. Yeah. Um, in coming up with the mission of your church, like kind of the overall yeah. focus vision, was that something that you had up with like your community of leaders or was that, that an example of the veto power? Just hold it a little bit farther away. Yeah, was that an example of kind of your veto power? You setting the mission and then letting everyone kind of uh, giving away ownership under that. I actually don't have an informed opinion for you. The way that it worked for us is because we were not in an on-purpose church plant. We kind of just like, I was still teaching at a Bible college when we were having non-unsaved people in our Bible study. Um, so then we went through an assessment and they were like, well, do you, how do you communicate why you guys are here? And we're like, oh, I, uh, and then through like some, oh, oh, I know how we say that. We're here to help your neighbors find and follow Jesus. So it was something that we had already intuitively done that those coaching tools helped us discover rather than create. So I, I, if you're a church planter who you're now creating your church in a box, like before it's actually going, like you're building it behind a curtain and you want to open up the curtain and show it to everybody, I don't have any coaching for you on that because ours, we were building it and then somebody says, oh look, there's your propeller. And I was like, oh yeah, I guess that is our propeller. That's the mission. So I, I'm sorry. Um, so you talk about like eventually like as a lead pastor or top leader, you kind of set that cap or you can set that cap and eventually you're going to lose the people that are underneath you because they're going to mature up to that level. How do you, what does that, what does that look like to 
brings somebody up? Is it like a formal thing? Like now me and you Great are question. peers. Yeah. And I don't know. And, and, and I would actually push back and say, no, you don't have to le le lose them. Um, so by including them at that next level of influence and um, they actually stay. So like Brian Buford and Taylor Knopp, uh, volunteered in our office. They, they, we gave them free office space. I had all 100% access to them, and they started BridgeElement.com. Now they own WickedCheapPrinting.com. Well, they sold one of them for seven figures. Uh, Brian now is more famous nationally than I am. Brian is on personal phone calls with people that speak at Catalyst, and like they know his number. And like he went to something at Relate, and one of the main speakers that they paid crazy thousands of dollars to is in a mastermind group that Brian organized and put together. So Brian is a freaking, he, he actually might be genius and he hasn't left Grace Church because I keep giving him more opportunities for influence. And so Grace Church looks like I'm here because of what Grace Church is doing because David Payne, might, I don't know, maybe because David Payne thinks that I'm responsible for that. But what I know is I'm a freaking puppet <laughs> with Brian Taylor and Ken saying like, Le like this is like, that's, that's, that's what that looks like. So I haven't lost any of those guys. Uh, but if I felt like, or if they felt God was calling them, then I would own them leaving. And that would be our next church plant. And so now grace church sent them out on purpose. Uh, so I would, I would own their advancement, but that's inviting them. Uh, if you don't mind. So the way that that looks like before I bring them up to that level, uh, we asked them to come into one meeting. Hey, we have a meeting next month, and I'd love for you to sit in on that and get your opinion. So it's just a one meet. I'm not inviting him for a permanent thing. I just invited him to one meeting. That's also how we choose our elders. They come to one elder meeting, say, hey, we just want your perspective on this. And we see how it goes. If it went well, we say, hey, we, we got one more meeting we want you to come to. And they come to that. They have no idea to try out for leadership. So shoot bullets before bombs. Bullets are less expensive and there's less damage. Tim Collins. Who? Jim Collins. I stole it from somebody. I don't know. <laughs> hey, listen, um, my email is sean at thatsgrace.org. Um, or I guess the easiest one would be um, um, uh, Twitter is just Sean Sears. So uh, if you have any questions, I'm more than willing to, whatever. I just, I, just, I, should, I, just, I just probably have a hard stop, though, for the sake of time. Yeah, that's awesome. I wanted to add one more thing because you were talking about pulling these leaders up, which is great. Since you were talking about TED Talks, there's a great TED Talk called The Making of a Movement. And it's um, a guy who does this TED Talk and he shows this video of a bunch of hippies. And you see it's this one video. hippie out there dancing. And it's actually the second guy that comes out and starts dancing with him. And then you see the entire crowd jump in. And why that video is so powerful is because it's really the, the second and the third guy who are the crazy people who make the leader the leader. And the, the second and the third and the fourth, like those are the ones that oftentimes have significant influence. There's no movement without the second and third yeah. person. Okay. And it's so, just a, without the second and third person, that dude's just a crazy guy dancing on a hill. But you need, you need, the, you need those guys who know this is my seat. This is, the, this is where I am. And I can help this guy run and chase everything that God's dropped in his heart. And so it's a great video. Bullets before bombs. Thank you, guys. Yeah.